If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 68 is something like, uh, how are all the various truths about the world related to each other? And we will be speaking with Mr. David Chalmers about his brand new book, Constructing the World. You can join the discussion and read loads of supplementary material at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. And our special guest? David Chalmers in New York. <laughs> all right. Wow. I am extremely geeked to have you on here. The reason that your name is so big in the first place is because of the Conscious Mind book from 96. Was that about correct, or was there something else that was equally seminal? Well, just before that book came out, there was a bit of stuff that I wrote about the hard and the easy problems of consciousness Mm -hmm. that uh, came out in uh, some magazines and journals, and that helped, uh, I guess, build the market for the book. But I guess the book is what people seem to remember now. Yeah, and whereas this work seems much more... It's still written in a friendly way. I think anybody could pick it up and get something out of it, but it is, at least on the face of it, a much more esoteric topic. Or am I misreading that? Yeah. No Calvin and Hobbes in this one. I had uh, had Bloom <laughs> County cartoons and, uh, and so on in the last book. Although it has to be said, even that book, The Conscious Mind, was pretty esoteric in some ways. It was actually my PhD thesis from Indiana University back in 93, and somehow it caught this wave, and it got a lot of people interested, even people who didn't have a background in philosophy. I still suspect, however, that some bits of it are pretty difficult. An awful lot of copies are lying unread on coffee tables. But, you know, this book, the new book, is mostly for an audience that's willing to work fairly hard. I did feel like with both books, because I just looked at the other book with a group of uh, listeners that we have these sort of offline discussion groups. Mm. It seemed like both of them, it's the first philosophy book I can recall that seemed to acknowledge the fact that, well, I'm looking at a wall of philosophy books here in my house, and most of them, the first half are read. That's just the way that assignments come Uh, in graduate school, say. Mm Yeah. Yeah. And it's very nice that in the first chapter of both of your books, you're like, well, read these two chapters for sure. And if you get around to it, they're very, and also they're very skimmable in that you repeat details sort of again and again in the different chapters. This might sound like a backhanded compliment, but that's an analogy that came to mind is if you're talking about the nature of man as being two-legged and then somebody write, well, of course, you know, some men only have one leg or no legs, but then they move on and could continue talking like that you would bring back the potentiality for the one-leggedness again and again, just so that any one given part of the book will be as precise as possible and not assume (laughs) that people have read the rest of it. My experience with the uh, the first book was that many, many people have read the first half and not many people at all ever read the second half. Ah. So for this book, I thought, well, okay, no one's going to read the whole thing, but I would like it if the readers are distributed over different chapters of the book. So I tried to write it so that different bits of it would be attractive to, uh, to different people. And up front, I've got a little thing saying uh, how to read this book. 
as if you're interested in this, read chapter 1 and chapter 2. But if you're interested in this, read chapter 7 and chapter 8. So my hope is that although no one's going to read more than 100 of the 500 pages, at least some people might actually end up looking at page 400. One hope, but I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm still hoping. I took your directions. I read the first chapter and the last chapter and skimmed through the middle. Okay, well, good. How did that work out for you? It worked out pretty well. I had... Um, I did some work applying Bayesian techniques to uh, doing some physics analysis in grad school. So I was interested in, um, I had not read sort of philosophical takes in terms of uh, confidence CR terms. I'd always read it at straight probability. So it was interesting to sort of see it put down in that kind of language. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, a lot of people have been bringing probability into philosophy in recent years, sometimes in a formal context. And here I was trying to see to what extent you could take some of these big grand projects in metaphysics and epistemology and bring some Bayesian probabilistic tools in to help analyze them. All right, Wes, give us your initial impressions. Uh, I thought it was, uh, it's very strange. <laughs> That's my initial impression. <laughs> we just got done reading the Carnap, so I was prepared for it, but it's unique. It's unlike most things I've read. Interesting. That sounds like somebody's straining to be polite. But I'll, I'll, no, I'll, no, I'll, not I'll, at all. I mean, it's, I mean, polite to myself. I mean, I, yeah. um, like, uh, Dylan, I did the first chapter and the eighth chapter mm -hmm. and the, the summary at the end following your recommendations. Yeah. I don't know how else to, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> to describe the whole. It's very technical. I know you outlined the philosophical implications of this constructivist project, but I find it hard to grasp. I mean, I know in general there are, perhaps there's some promise for approaches to the mind body problem and for, let's say, dissolving or clarifying metaphysical problems and so on and so forth. The implications aren't entirely clear to me. A large portion of the book was defining a way to think about a problem. In other words, it's not a position, rather, it's a family of positions, and you're very charitable. And it's the big puzzle of this to me is that the parent projects to these, like Carnap's or like Laplace's, seem to be nasty in a certain way, that they're trying to eliminate certain, like Hume, saying that philosophy that is not about things that are amenable to empirical inspection should be committed to the flames. That That's sort of the father of all of these constructivist projects that were before yours, but yet yours is extremely non-reductionist, extremely generous, extremely well- I'm not going to settle here what kind of supervenience holds between mind and body and what needs to be included in the base. I'm just saying some kind of scrutability will work, sort of depending on whatever your philosophical commitments may be. Yeah, so these views in some ways, in many ways, go out of the views of Rudolf Carnap, who is often caricatured as a logical positivist or mm -hmm. somewhat more politely a logical empiricist, one of these people who tried to you know, reduce everything just to simple experience or to some reductive base and to deny the existence of metaphysics and culture and who knows what. I think it's a little bit unfair even to Carnap, but there's also <laughs> an element of truth to it. But what I tried to do was to take elements of the spirit of this project and sever it from the strong logical positivism of saying, you know, this is all there is in the world and allow arbitrary primitive things in the base and just go with the idea there's some set of primitives about the world from which a, a full picture about the world can be derived. Now, for Laplace, Laplace's demon, Laplace said the primitives about the world is just the positions of all the particles at a time and the laws of nature. From that, you ought to be able to predict everything. Mm -hmm. For Carnap, the primitives are the primitives of experience. From certain facts about this logical structure of your experience, you can predict everything. Many people think neither project quite works, but 
Maybe it's just their bases are too small. They didn't have enough primitives. Maybe if we throw some more stuff into the base, physics and consciousness and some other stuff, if you like, space-time and causation, then we have enough primitives to go on with. By allowing you know, a bit more in the base, that's to some extent severing it from this strongly reductionistic base. That's why I sometimes I call the project in the introduction Carnapian rationalism as opposed to Carnapstone empiricism. It allows quite a deep structure for the world that we can know a priori, perhaps through the methods of metaphysics and philosophy of which someone like Carnap might have been quite dismissive. So scrutability, you just defined what a generalized picture of scrutability is, that there's some set of facts from which all the rest of the facts can be, well, I don't want to say derived, because that seems to be the innovation of talking about it in terms of scrutability, that it's not logical entailment. You're not saying that there's a set of basic facts that if we put these down, then through deductive reasoning, we can get the rest of it, right? There seemed to be some advantage in saying, instead, you use the Laplacian demon image, that if there was sort of an ideal knower that knew all the stuff that was in the base, then that knower could figure out a priori, right, without having additional experiences, because, say, the base could include stuff like the positions of the particles or things that we would get through experience. But if the knower knows stuff in the base, then it could figure out everything else. And there seemed to be some advantage of putting it in epistemological terms like that, rather than putting it as a straight matter of logical entailment. Yeah, so the inspiration here is something like Laplace's demon. You know, Laplace said, tell the demon the positions of all the particles and the laws of nature and then nothing will be uncertain. The demon will be able to, for any hypothesis it's interested in, you know, who will win the election tomorrow? Will it rain on Thursday? Will there be a third world war? Given that basic information about the particles, the demon can figure out whether that's true. So that's an instance of what I call scrutability. Laplace is saying that if the demon has all that physical knowledge, the demon can figure out anything at all about the world. Even from Laplace, I don't think Laplace had the idea the demon would figure it out through logic alone. Through logic alone, maybe the mathematics or the physics, the demon can figure out where the particles are going to be tomorrow, given the knowledge of the particles. But to move from the particles to questions about who wins the election, will it rain tomorrow, will there be a third world war, the demon needs to kind of step back and look at the world from a broader perspective and apply concepts like raining and elections and Wars. I don't think you can do that out of by logic. Well, kind of thought you could because you thought you could define all those things right. in terms of the primitives. I'm skeptical of that project of trying to define things ultimately in terms of definition. The approach I take is to sever all this a bit from the notion of logic and of definition and instead do it roughly in terms of just what you could know. If you knew this, you could know that. In this case, the knowing involves concepts in the base that feed into this. They may have a completely different source, but once you have those concepts in a base, then they would be the things you do your reasoning from? Yeah, in a way, this scrutability relation connects different sets of concepts. So for Laplace's demon, the basic concepts were concepts of physics. Here are all the particles and their positions, and here are the laws of nature. Given all that, Laplace says you can know everything. You can know whether it's raining, who'll win the election. It's a certain basic set of concepts from which you can infer, in principle, any truths about the world using any concepts at all. And that's the sense in which it's a primitive base. And you've got to be able to cross the level, if you like, from the primitive concepts in the base to the derived truths using any concepts at all. Sorry, and in the case of Laplace, you don't have to get too wound up about what you mean by particle exactly, right? It wouldn't matter if you had the particles be what we would think of as atoms now versus quarks later, as long as you had laws that applied to particles of that sort. You're not going to get too wound up about that. 
I think Laplace actually said the fundamental constituents of nature or the fundamental elements that make up nature, and he was neutral on what they were. Maybe he was thinking they were something like atoms, more basic Newtonian particles, but maybe they could be quarks. Maybe in you know, a contemporary framework of quantum mechanics, it could be a big quantum mechanical wave function. What's fundamental in the world is the wave function. And you could just use that and go. I think you're right about the way Laplace himself would say it, that what you meant by these fundamental particles were things that had no constituents and weren't reducible to some other either physical structure or they were fundamental in that way. They were not reducible. But I was wondering if that was a necessary condition. I guess this just goes to the question of what your sort of minimal base is and whether or not reducing it further makes it simpler, more desirable. And that's a separate judgment, I guess. Or is there also an issue that, like in Carnap, it looked like you could have, because everything fits together logically, there's a certain amount of, you know, it's just a matter of sort of what's most epistemically convenient as to what you're going to consider the base, that you could link every part of existence to every part definitionally. So while we can see the logic that he had for setting the phenomenal as the base, as you mentioned in your book several times, in fact, toward the end, he thought he could even just use purely logical concepts. But in any case, it seemed like there were multiple ways that which you call the postulates and which you call the axioms. Yeah, I mean, in Carnap's book, it's called the logical structure of the world, and the ultimate aim was to get everything from just logic in the base. But for much of the book, he actually um, tried to get the world from experience, from states of mm -hmm. consciousness, and he had this basic relation of phenomenal similarity of, among experiences that he started from. So many people have taken the book to be this sort of phenomenalist work, where we take the phenomenal or the experiential as basic and get things from there. But Carnap himself was actually a pluralist, and he says, I could have written the alphabet. I could have written this book starting with a physical base instead of with a phenomenal base. And in fact, you know, within four or five years, once he got to Vienna, he started moving very much from the phenomenalist perspective to the physicalist perspective and started trying to build things up from physical elements. And I think he's also inclined to think there are many other bases that would work as well. So I don't think Carnap saw himself as trying to limb the ultimate metaphysical constituents of the world. Kind mm -hmm. of was just too anti-metaphysical for that. He thought, there's just a bunch of different bases you can start with, and none of them is the absolute rock-bottom fundamental level of reality. But the case there would be that all the to be bases in the way he's speaking of them, and I suppose the way you would speak of a scrutability base, is that they have to be transformable in some way from one to another. You may choose one as being more convenient, or less yeah. convenient, but at the end of the day, because they at some level cover, then yeah. you're going to have to be able to have transformations in between them. That's right. Your base has to be rich enough to be able to get everything out, any truth mm -hmm. about the world. You know, if it's true that the cat sat on the mat, you've got to be able to get that from your base. If it's true that the quality of mercy is not strained, you've got to get that from the base. If it's true that God exists, you've got to be able to get that from the base. We want to be able to recover all of reality from our base. Yep. Yeah. And that will end up ruling out certain bases. In fact, some people think that Carnap's space was in fact too narrow. From a phenomenal base, you can't recover space and time and other things. That was Klein's problem. Some people think that a physical base isn't enough because you can't get to the mind. So your base absolutely has to be rich enough to be able to get all of reality out. But that's consistent with there being different bases. Maybe we can do it with the spatial and the experiential. Maybe we can do it with the causal and the qualitative. It could be there are multiple bases all of which are rich enough to get out all of reality. And then there's an interesting question as to whether any of them are somehow the privileged base in the sense of, you know, the fundamental level. 
Now, if you don't already have a strong intuition about what the fundamental base has to be, it seems like the motivation behind most of these constructive risk projects seems to me to be some kind of ontological parsimony, <laughs> wanting to have to reduce, to make things simple. But given that you and apparently Carnap had a fairly flexible and generous spirit in light of ontology, can you describe what is the motivation then? Just yeah. everything fits together somehow? Well, that's a great question. And for me, there's lots of motivations and sort of metaphysical motivations are one among many. You know, so you might think of this project as trying to get at the fundamental metaphysical constituents of the world and getting the rest of the world built up from there. And indeed, that's one motivation for me. I'm more friendly than Carnap to the idea that there is a metaphysically fundamental level. And I talk a lot in this book about the thesis of fundamental scrutability, that all truths about the world are scrutable, can be recovered from distribution of fundamental truths about the world and fundamental ontology. Now, for some people who are physicalists, fundamental ontology would just be the physical. For someone like me, who's more of a dualist, I think you need the physical and the mental in your fundamental ontology. So everything should be scrutable from there. But that's just one motivation, motivations in metaphysics. There are also motivations in epistemology, thinking about you know, how much can we know about the world and what are the limits on our knowledge of the world. There are very strong motivations for me also in the philosophy of language and the philosophy of mental content. That is, how do we understand meaning? How do we understand the difference between the meaning of Hesperus and Phosphorus? Something that Frege talked about, or water and H2O. For me, this scrutability project plays in in a slightly complicated way into that project by allowing you to build up what I call an epistemological semantics. So it's actually got all these different motivations for me. I find myself thinking about the philosophy of language and thinking about metaphysics, thinking about the epistemology, thinking about philosophy of mind, with many different motivations, and they all converged on the central notion of scrutability, which is why I ended up having to write this big rambly book that ends up trying to do a bit of all these things. Well, and it's not even just one book, right? You're writing three... Oh, yeah, there's more coming. <laughs> Simultaneous. Yeah. Bad idea to make promises like that in the introduction, but uh, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a book on meaning, which is hopefully coming sometime before too long, and then maybe even one on possibility and necessity. I don't want to come out too close to each other. It's like, you know, I've got to give the world a chance to actually read the first one first, but hopefully at some point. You didn't pull a Heidegger for being in time and actually put a table of contents covering all three books in the first book. That would be a really bad idea, I think. Yeah, that would, that would really lock you in. <laughs> it didn't lock him. He just said, oh, well, <laughs> I'm, that, I'm yeah. doing different things now. Yeah. You raised the point about Frega. So we had a whole Frega episode, and mm. that was a mysterious thing to us, really how indifferent Frega was about ontological, about metaphysical matters, such that he didn't seem to care what these senses were. And that's what made subsequent philosophers of a more materialist bent, at least, so uncomfortable with admitting Fragian senses or something like that in the ontology, or we have to have a, like Russell's theory of descriptions or something that gets rid of these. But you would pitch scrutability as one way of really making Fragian senses sound very sensible. In fact, we said Carnap, you know, the reason he in the Aufbau had an extensional method was because the senses, the intention was too subjective. He was trying to do something that was straight up scientific. But the way that you describe your analog of the Fragian sense also sounds much less problematic. Let me try to phrase it and you can tell me if I've got it right, which is it that it, what you are giving in place of a Fragian sense or a sense maps a scenario a real world scenario onto a referent. So it maps a concept. So let's say we have the concept, I always use Clark Kent and Superman. So we have the concept Clark Kent and in some epistemically possible worlds, you know, for all we know, Clark Kent could be Superman or could not be. 
So you've got the sense Clark Kent, given a particular scenario, maps that concept Clark Kent onto Superman, given the facts of the world, something like that. What am I butchering there? Yeah, in fact, this is an idea which I take from a different part of Carnap's work. The logical structure of the world came out in the late 20s, but in the late 40s, he wrote a book called Meaning and Necessity, Mm -hmm. where he really was one of the first ones to bring in this framework of possible worlds into thinking about meaning. And he really viewed it as a way to domesticate Frege's notion of sense. Frege had talked about Hesperus and Phosphorus, Clark Kent and Superman. They've got the same referent for different senses. But he never really told us what senses were. Well, Carnap had an idea. Maybe they're intentions. And by intentions, he meant something like functions from possible worlds to extensions. So if the world is one way, Clark Kent is one thing. If the world is another way, Clark Kent is another thing. This comes out really nicely thinking about Frege's classical case of Hesperus and Phosphorus. You know, the sense of Hesperus might be something like the evening star. Carnap will model that as a function which in any given world picks out whatever is the evening star in that world. In mm-hmm. our world, Venus is the evening star, picks out Venus. But hey, if things had turned out differently, Jupiter could have been the evening star. Then the intention of Hesperus picks out Jupiter. For Phosphorus, on the other hand, will have an intention that picks out the morning star in any given world. So then you notice we get this interesting result. Hesperus and Phosphorus have different intentions. One picks out the morning star in a world. One picks out the evening star in any given world. The way you get the reference is in the actual world, you see what those things pick out in this world. And since in our world, the morning star is the evening star, they both pick out the planet Venus. So Carnap said, ah, that's how we can understand Frege's notion of senses, using the framework of possible worlds as intentions. And what I'm basically using People have gotten a lot more skeptical about that in recent years, in part because of the work of Saul Kripke and others, which is a whole other story. But I think once you approach it in terms of the scrutability framework, you can actually make a version of that project of Carnap's work out pretty well and try to understand the sense of Hesperus and Phosphorus as an intention, like a function from scenarios to reference, so that they actually do vindicate a bit of uh, some element, at least, of Frege's notion of sense. What's the formula for that in terms of scrutability, that the referent is scrutable from knowledge of the given scenario? How do you put it? It's an innovation. Yeah. What you first have to do is to construct. We've got like a base for the actual world, the description for the actual world, but that's just one scenario, the actual scenario. Like maybe it's physically like this and mentally like this. But then we can think of all kinds of other ways the world could be, for all we know, a priori. It could be physically like that and mentally like that. We get a whole bunch of scenarios each of which have their own scrutability base, descriptions of those scenarios. Given this scrutability thesis, all the truths about those scenarios will be settled by a description of them. So to see whether, for example, Hesperus is Phosphorus is true in a given scenario, you just take the basic description of the scenario and say, is Hesperus and Phosphorus scrutable from that? In this world, yes, it is. In another world with a distinct morning and evening star, From that scenario, you take a basic description of that, then maybe you don't get Hesperus as Phosphorus, rather you get Hesperus as not Phosphorus. So the intention is basically the function that takes a scenario and yields true if Hesperus is Phosphorus, it's scrutable from that scenario, and yields false if Hesperus is not Phosphorus, it's scrutable from that scenario. That's basically how it works. Yeah, I like that as a concrete example of the theory in action. Good, because I don't know it does get kind of abstract, but uh, hopefully it'll eventually bottoms out. I hope that did not sound too unintentionally ironic, that that you say something that loses two-thirds of the audience, and I'm relieved that it's a concrete example. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I don't know how much background everybody has in, in you know sense and reference and intention and extension. And... We have episodes on them. They can yeah. go and listen. It's fine. Okay, very good. <laughs> go back to episode thirty-seven, guys. It's all there. <laughs> the Schleiermacher, really? Yeah. Really? <laughs> Maybe let's uh, – I think a big question that's immediately going to come up to people is you've said you do think that there are some fundamental components of the world. And you've said that on your view that there have to be physical components and there have to be mental components or phenomenal components. I know in your formula, you called it PQTI. So it's yeah. it's physical. It's qualia. Yeah. Right? Those are the phenomenal. The I is indexical, that yeah. even if you know all the physical and the mental things, you still don't know – I am here and it is three o'clock now that those are that's right. the Laplacian demon couldn't know those things. And then the T, the that's all. Tell me more about why you need the that's all. Is it to rule out angelic truths that are we don't have access to, but could be truths nonetheless out there or something? What is the purpose of the T? Something like that. The idea is even once you've specified the positive character of the world, you haven't said some of all the truths until you've said that that's all the stuff there is. So if I just give you all the stuff about physics or all the stuff about physics and consciousness, then I've told you about what this bit of the universe is like. But maybe there's more in it. Maybe there's a whole other domain or another realm, like where God is or where the angels are or where the ectoplasm is. Or maybe there's six different universes came before or after this one. So if I just tell you there's all these particles here and all these minds here, that doesn't tell you whether or not there's a whole bunch of other particles. So, for example, just say there's no God. Merely telling you the physical truths about our world, it just doesn't settle whether there's a God or not. It might be consistent with there being a God and consistent with there being no God. So assuming there's no God, to get all the truths about the world, what you need to do is not just give me physics or even the physical and the mental. You need to say, in addition, after saying there are all these particles and all these minds, then you need to say, and that's all there is. Well, that's all there is in the fundamental character of the world. Once you've said that's all, then you're going to have ruled out the existence of anything else that you haven't mentioned that's you know fundamentally distinct from them, like angels or ectoplasm and so on. Without doing that, then you've still just left open huge amounts of what's true about the world. To me, that was functioning basically exactly the same way as conservation claims do in physics, that mm -hmm. you say that there is a hole by which you're going to measure everything else, and that without that hole, you just can't have any purchase at all on how to divide up the rest of it. And so you are always going to take something as defining your system. And for small systems and relatively, you know, unambitious projects, you might acknowledge that you're, well, I'm leaving out friction here. And I'm doing that on purpose because I'm just going to make it easier. And I'm going to say that's kind of an approximation. And if I was going to be more thorough, I'd have to include things like that. But the way I'm approaching this problem assumes that whatever result I get assumes a whole that is feeding into that and that everything that I'm talking about is comprised in that hole and so that my answers are dependent upon those things I put into that hole but are completely descriptive of it. Yeah, we need to somehow specify the limits of the world. This yeah. is what there is in the world and this is of the limits. Conserved quantities are, I guess, one example of limits of the world. This is all the mass there is in the world. This is all the charge there is in the world. And so those are examples of the kinds of limits that could be specified by that sort of clause. And this would work differently than other principles that you would use to judge these characteristics, like a principle of least action or a simplicity principle or other kinds of minimizations or maximizations or whatever. Those are separate from the that's all kind of condition. 
I think they are, yeah. Because even if that's a law of physics, it doesn't rule out that, for example, there's something totally separate in the world, like gods or previous universes or 26-dimensional octopi in another realm. The principle of least action is just telling you about one local bit of the world, the physical bit here. In order to know that that's all there is in the world and there's not these other realms, you need something else separate from that that kind of says, ah, and this is the limits of the world. That's all there is. What I've just told you, I'm talking about physics. That's all there is. I guess in the case of the principle of least action, I guess from energy conservation or something, it might not apply to describing the whole world or all concepts in the world, but to the extent that anything in that outside, the angels or octopi or whatever, had effects that changed your action or changed your energy, then you would say that they had to be held into it. So that... Ah, but what if they don't have effects? Your only option there is you either have a multi-factored world that have realms that don't talk to one another. Yeah, that's a possibility though, isn't it? That's a possibility we have to rule out. Yeah. So I agree that if they had effects back on the world, then that would all get factored into the physics somehow. But what about the hypothesis that there are all these other realms which aren't having an effect on our world? Maybe, you know, God is just watching us from another realm. The question is, until we've said that's all, then we haven't excluded the possibility there's all this extra stuff there, admittedly not having an effect on our world. Yeah. But still real all the same. That seems right. That's the effect of a that's all claim to mm-hmm. constrain what you're going to be talking about. Yeah. Shouldn't we have in mind how different this is as a metaphysical project from the projects in physics that you're describing, Dylan? It sounds like certainly this has to be a more modest post-Kantian form of metaphysics if it's metaphysics at all. Right, Dave? Is that... Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're going to say that, we're just going to stipulate that this is all and thereby just say we're not dealing with, say, theological issues, that we're trying to come up with a scrutability within what, the phenomenal realm, or however you're going to put it. It sounds like you're trying to, to, as Quine and Carnap seem to be doing, come up with a conceptual scheme that is consistent with science and is sort of putting some metaphysical issues aside, but yet you call this some sort of metaphysics. Yeah, you know, I think it's a project which is consistent with many different metaphysical views. If you do believe there's a God, then you'll probably have something about God in the base. If you do believe the world has a phenomenal realm and a noumenal realm, then maybe there'll be something about the noumenal realm in the base. If, on the other hand, you're just a physicalist, then maybe you can just have physical stuff in the base. So the scrutability project framework on its own is somewhat neutral on the actual metaphysical questions. Of course, I have views on them, so then the versions of the framework that I end up liking the best will build certain different things in there. But I am inclined to think that an awful lot of what's of the fundamental constituents of the world are what you get from fundamental physics. So to that extent, quite a lot of the primitive truths in my scrutability base will be the truths that come from physics, including fundamental laws like these principles you get from uh, you know, unified theory or quantum gravity or whatever it is. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support.